Hey folks, I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. I am pleased to welcome my guest for this session, uh, Will Greenberg. Will is a strength and conditioning and performance development coach currently with the Buffalo Bills. Over the last 15 years, through diverse experiences in various sports, he's gained expertise in cultivating environments that allow athletes and teams to thrive. And I am I am super excited for this conversation. Um, Will and I have talked a bunch of times over the last little bit, and I always learn something from the way that he approaches performance, both at the individual and team level. And I'm just, I'm just like really excited to bring that to you all for this. Um, I'll also, I'll stress right at the beginning that like every guest on my show, uh, Will is here representing himself, not necessarily the organization that he works for. And like all of us, you know, not necessarily the hospitals or the programs or anything else that we work for. We're all here as individuals trying to share our expertise to get better. Um, so all that said, uh, Will, thank you so much for coming on the program. It's great to have you. And thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Uh, I've been listening to your podcast here for the last year or so, and I'm uh, I'm glad that we've been able to connect and and really excited to do this show with you. Absolutely, man. Um, for for folks that don't know you, can you give everybody a brief intro to to who you are and and what it is that you do? Sure. Well, I, I'd expect most people not to know who I am. You know, I it, as as um, even though I'm in the NFL, I, I really thrive doing stuff behind the scenes so i'm never really trying to be out in the in the press or the media or anything that's gonna to shine light you know my whole goal is to help the athletes have the light shine on them so i wouldn't expect too many people to to know who i am but a little bit of background on me um you know it by trey i'm a strength conditioning coach so i i came up as an athlete played baseball at university of maryland i uh, thought i was going to keep playing uh, everyone else had a different uh, idea for me. They said, hey, that's enough. We've seen enough of that. Uh, and I I loved lifting weights in college. So I thought, what better to do than just jump right back in? And I had a strength coach in college that I really liked. And I went back. I got my master's degree, um, You know, got to GA, be a graduate assistant, do that for free while I was coaching. Uh, and then I bounced around. I was at Clemson. I was at Florida. And I was at Appalachian State. All those roles were with basketball, even though I had played baseball. Um, and then a buddy of mine uh, was the head strength coach at, at Army West Point. He asked me if I wanted to come try football out, be a strength coach for football there. I spent a couple of years there. Then I went as the uh, head of performance at Southern Utah, a really small school out in Utah. Uh, I was there for a year. And then uh, luck have it, the Bills needed a strength coach who – knew a lot about nutrition and that's why I have my master's in. Uh, so I've been here now, this is going on my seventh season. Hmm. I've been really, really fortunate to be a part of uh, something that has grown into what we have. Um, it's been, a, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a journey. It's been a learning journey for me. And in that time, my role has gone from strength coach. And like you said, a performance development coach. And, and, and it's just expanded in the way of, I'm doing a lot more than just being in the weight room with all the athletes. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the reason for that is this environment, these athletes are so finely tuned that to find where the performance, um, where we can push performance doesn't lie just in how much they can bench press or squat and spending time with them, both in the weight room, out on the field, in real life, just as human beings I found a lot of pressure points and, and ways to interact with people to make them a better version of themselves or help them understand themselves better. Mm -hmm. And so 
<clears throat> that role has transitioned to a holistic care for the athlete. You know, how is we're talking nutrition, sleep, uh, mindset, um, <clears throat> you know, onboarding for rookies so that they can perform quickly when they get in, um, helping our retired players transition out, um, mm-hmm. you know, staying in contact with with former players or players on different teams, things that I'm they know that I take a holistic approach with them and providing more than just, hey, here's your sets and reps. And that's kind of how my role has developed here. And, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the relationships that I've made and the, the transformations I made with people. So that's a little bit about who I am and, and what I do. Yeah. And so, so this, like, we're all already just jumping into why I'm so excited to have you on for this episode, right? Which is that we're talking here about what it takes to really support absolutely elite level performers, elite level operators, and both sustain their ability to perform at that elite level and also help them push themselves and push the edge of their capabilities there. Um, And there's a couple threads that you dropped there that we're going to pick up. One of them is onboarding rookies, bringing Mm -hmm. people into the culture and universe of a space. Um, One of them is going to be maintaining performance output over time in a team. Um, But but I want to start with sort of a third version of that, um, which is the question of like, and this is maybe a very basic question that you're sort of already answering, but what exactly is the sort of on paper role of a strength and conditioning coach? What's the on paper role of a performance development coach? And when we think about this in the broader sort of coaching ecosystem around a team, Mm -hmm. how does that fit into it? And I, I think, I think professional sports are such an interesting model for this because the coaching and training and support and augmentation sort of structure around that is so much more mm-hmm. built up than it is for a lot of the other universes that you know we talk about in the emergency mind project. So I think it's worth yeah. for a second zooming out and being like, where do you fit into all of this and how is it supposed to fit together? And then we'll talk about how you've been disrupting everything, which is awesome. But theoretically, yeah. how is it supposed to work? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. And and for me, it's it's one of those things that's so common knowledge. I, mm-hmm. I forget that you know, other industries, other, other people may not understand fully what that looks like. So there's so many pieces and parts to make a football team run. And if you, if you kind of want to reduce it down into the coaching staff and the support staff. So your coaching staff is your skill sides, your techniques and your tactics. Um, They're going to be breaking down film. They're going to be coaching them on the field. This is technical, tactical work for them to perform their sport. The support staff side is made up of a whole bunch of different departments. So we're talking equipment, we're talking athletic training and physiotherapy. We're talking about uh, strength conditioning coaches, uh, mental skills coaches. Um, you know, so there's a, there's a, a whole team of people looking out for everything that happens that is not just the skills of the game. And there's also a, you know, we have player engagement here, which is meant for things that are outside the building as well. Um, mm-hmm. So in that team of people, you have your strength conditioning coaches. And traditionally in college, there's there's a maximum of five strength conditioning coaches, and that's what we have here at the Bills. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in college, you have, you know, 100 players. Here we have about 70 players. And so you're looking after players coming in, in a physical sense, into the weight room and physically develop, developing themselves in some way. Um, and players have all have different needs. 
So that's why, I mean, even five, it seems like a lot, but now you're looking after a certain amount of players and it's, there's a lot of things going on at the same time. So a lot of it is trying to get the most out of everyone's physical development in the time that you're given, because throughout a, a day, everything's very regimented, very scheduled where we might have three or four opportunities, you know, 30 minutes here, an hour here, 45 minutes here to get the most out of them physically when they're not in meetings or they're not on the field. Um, so, you know, as a strength coach in season, there's those pockets of the day out of this, out of season in the NFL, there's time where players are away. There are time where players are here in college. You pretty much have them year round, but what you're looking after is their physical development. And really when they get here and as they get older, it's physical refinement. You know, by 26, you've really physically peaked of how strong and how fast, like that's, that's really your, your time around that area. So if you have players that are 26, 28, 30, 32, you're really just trying to peel back the layers of how do we keep them fresh? Not necessarily how do we develop them into something new? So every level you're at as a strength conditioning coach, development looks, feels, and smells a little bit different. And you have to understand that context. And, and even within that, you might have two 26-year-olds that need different levels of, sure. of work. So, I mean, there are so many variables to each person's history of, of injury and development and where they've been and what they can do, um, what their physical gifts are. So um, there's a lot of nuance to it. But mm. what really, at the end of the day, as a strength and conditioning coach, you're looking after their physical development, which generally has to do with how strong they are, how fast they are, how conditioned they are. And what gives them the capacity to play their sport. All right. So as somebody who is um, substantially, I'll say older than 26, I'm going to politely ignore you saying I, I physically peaked uh, back at 26 and keep pushing forward um, in any case. So, uh, so one thing there that really struck me is thinking about the difference between development and refinement, hmm. right? And the conscious approach to those two very different tasks. Um, yeah. Because it now, okay, I might be way off on this, but it would seem to me that a lot of the large scale skills and a lot of the large movements are already pretty put in place by the time folks reach you. Mm-hmm. And you might be adjusting, you might be training them, but but from that perspective, both in the skill side and in the strength side and movement side, it's probably more of a refinement process compared to, for example, the way that a professional jujitsu player might do where there's constantly mm-hmm. sort of a string of new moves and new ideas coming yeah. out um, or what uh, an ER doctor would do where the the surface area of medicine you're interacting with is changing on a pretty rapid basis. Yeah. Um, am, I, am I reading that right? Is it, is it, is that like a fair assessment? Yeah. I, I think um, when you get to a certain level of mastery in sports, the physical, like what got you there is usually your physical abilities. And what I think I've seen, especially, which has helped me getting reflection from onboarding rookies and being with second years and third years, is the biggest jumps are not physical, but they are mental and I don't mean that of emotional. It's more about how quick the game is and how well you can perceive and act and react. So the, that perception action coupling of I can perceive what's going on and act appropriately, or I have a knowledge of what is going on. I can pre-plan for the, the potential what's going to happen. 
and I can have this understanding of how the game works. So the, the, the total understanding of the tactics of the game and the recognition of what's going on in the moment that allows a player with the same, probably the same physical abilities to perform better rather than a rookie who's overwhelmed by, Oh my gosh, there's so much stuff going on and it's so fast because you're taking the, the best of the best, the fastest, the fastest people who can perceive the quickest and you're putting them all in the same field. And now it moves fast. And you have people doing that for 10, 12 years, knowing exactly how to leverage their body or move in a certain mm-hmm. position, know exactly where the ball is going to be. And so the the game just happens faster. So the mental aspect of it or the perception of the game really changes. So the physical side of it, is no longer really, hey, I'm going to develop, spend so much emotional and physical energy to, to develop, you know, 10 extra pounds on your squat or lose two extra percent body fat. That would be a an inefficient way to really move the needle for someone at this level. It's still important, but okay. to expend all of your resources like you might have in high school or the beginning of college to really physically develop wouldn't be as efficient. So when you, the physical part of it now is how, Hmm. how, what is the minimal effective dose that we can get done that is going to keep you fresh on the times that you need to be fresh. And from there, how can we make you as robust as possible? Because, uh, you know, availability in the league is your best ability, right? If you, Hmm. you know, if you can't play, if you're injured, then you're not making an impact for the team, probably not going to make money. You know, it affects your contract. There are so many things that being healthy and being fresh are important for uh, being in, being in professional sports. There's so so many layers to what you just said, right? So, so, okay. Availability is your best ability. I, Mm -hmm. I nodded and glossed over that. And then I was like, wait a minute, that's actually like deeply, deeply important, right? Because that is sort of what you're optimizing for, Mm -hmm. right? You're optimizing for availability and time in order to continue playing. Yeah, you have to have that in order to play. Now, what you do from there can make a difference of whether you're successful in that availability. Sure, sure. And in a way, what you're describing about, you know, the the quickness of the perceive and act loop Mm -hmm. and the way that's so much faster, there's a link there to you know, we talk a lot in the podcast about cognitive load theory, yeah. right? We talk about the idea of, you know, intrinsic load, what's what's intrinsic to the task you're trying to do versus extraneous load, all the other stuff around you. Mm-hmm. And 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 maybe this is a bridge between this and onboarding rookies, but I would imagine that one of the big factors that really separates elite level play from, you know, sub-elite in one sense or another level play is the amount of extraneous cognitive load that's going on yeah. there. Um that's a pretty big difference between the universe of professional sport and some of the other universes that we talk about, right? There's, you know, it, when you're in the middle of a resuscitation that's life or death, it almost doesn't matter what kind of a room you're in. It doesn't matter if that resuscitation is taking place at the best hospital in the world, or mm-hmm. it's taking place at the smallest hospital that you just happen to be operating in. Your your sphere of influence and your team is, you know, not exactly the same, but fairly similar. Um but this is a real difference in terms of what you're describing here. So I, I don't know, take, take that and run with it wherever you yeah. want to go with it. Like, like, what is that like? Yeah. One thing I've noticed about athletes at this level is that they are so naturally gifted at getting in a zone. 
of focusing their intention on when it comes to playing the sport or being in the game of <clears throat> removing the extraneous load on what they need mm-hmm. to be thinking about. It's you watch them get into this zone. You watch them, you, you watch people get into what some people call flow in, in some mm-hmm. states and they, they switch, they, they flip a switch and they probably have done it their entire lives of positive self-talk and, and being able to uh, compartmentalize at different times of their life. And it probably what it has helped them get to this level. And sometimes there needs to be some refinement of that and a, a reminder to them of how good they are at doing that and giving them the intentional skills to do that. But most likely they have done that in some capacity, just naturally it's, it was a, it was a tool that they developed on their own or someone might've worked with them on the, on the outside of that. And the way I see the cognitive load is almost like decision fatigue when they're not playing their sports. So professional athletes are so inundated with their, their brand, their business, charity, family, friends, contract. Like there's so many, there's so many factors that professional athletes have to deal with all the time. And that's where, when I'm talking about onboarding rookies and working with players to simplify their lives, being able to structure someone's life or go along with them and help them structure their life can reduce that decision fatigue where if they, if you need to get them a chef or a meal prep service or something where they don't have to think about what they're going to eat, it's just going to be in front of them. That's one less decision they have to make and one less bad potential bad decision they have to make. If they need their, um, they need their charity work to be on a certain day, they can schedule it to make sure that it's away from practice days or it's on your, your day off. And if they need to, you know, have their, um, their, a certain type of bed or a certain bedtime routine or things that are, are needed. One of the roles of that, I'm not necessarily, you know, in, in my job description, but something that you end up taking on is helping provide that for them so that they don't have to think about it. And mm-hmm. it's not about spoiling with them or, or them being entitled. It's, my job is to support the athlete fully and holistically. Mm-hmm. And they're not experts in what needs to be done. I am. So I'm going to go out of my way to make sure that all those things, all those boxes are checked so that they don't have to think about it because their job is to play really well on Sunday. And if that means me getting there and talking to their chef and um, you know planning out their macronutrients and having their lifts ready when they come in and having their um, you know, the, the uh, schedule for them for what their day looks like, then that's what, that's what sure. we're going to provide in order to make sure that they have less decisions they have to make. Probably going to be better decisions if I make them for them and they can just focus on watching six hours of film at night. You know, there's, there's, there's so many things there, but then there's also the interaction that ends up happening where players want life is messy. Life is complex. They, some players want to know, well, how do I deal with this? You know, I have a girlfriend that's mad at me that that I don't spend enough time with her in season. So, you know, those those are the side conversations where you you can really um, make bang for your buck with with the players because you help talk them through their lives. You help talk them through, and a lot of it is just motivational interviewing. A lot of it is just asking sure. them questions, and they're talking through their answers for them, and you're just pointing out, hey, here's what I hear you saying. 
Um, you know, how does that make you feel when this happens? Or what do you think she would be thinking about? Or what do you think you're, you know, this, this, and this? And you end up just resonating with them as a human being. And they end up coming for you to you for help with things that have nothing to do with, you know, bench press or squatting or yeah. pull-ups. And, and you become, again, like I keep saying the word holistic, and I know that's really overused, but it really is. You're, you're taking on, you're investing your time into the success of the human being. To me, there's a direct link here between what um, a prior podcast guest, Rich Devaney, would talk about in terms of peak versus optimal performance, hmm. right? So from, from his universe, he talks about peak performance as being what an Olympian or in your case, what a you know a player on the bills shoots for mm-hmm. on Sunday, sure. which is how do we create a system and a universe which allows the best possible performance to happen, mm-hmm. give the person all the tools they need, and then set them loose into it. Yeah. So much of what of what we talk about in the Emergency Mind Project actually is the opposite: is optimal performance, which is how do we do the best we can with what we have, right? Knowing right. that for almost everybody listening to this, there aren't personal chefs and there aren't folks helping them with right. what you're describing, and quite the opposite, if anything, right? Yeah. But what I think is so instructive is that so much of the time, those of us operating in the optimal performance universe are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm here in optimal performance. Those peak guys, they got it. You know, They're just off in a different thing and there's really no connection. There's no attempt to draw a connection between those. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably self-defeating and self-limiting. And I would imagine that by learning some of the systems that you're describing about how peak performance works in your organization, that even mm-hmm. if you're listening to this and you're not somebody that has a peak performance driven life, you can take lessons away from this because there's probably things you can do to move yourself more towards this. I'm going to call it an operating system for lack of a better word for it. Yeah. Right. And a lot of what you're getting into here is what is the operating system that a intact team driven for peak performance uses to create the best possible circumstances most yeah. possibly in their favor. Um, and that's super cool. And and I, I, you know, that's part of why I love talking to you is I watch you sort of like think these things and sort of, you know, will them into existence, right? Um, so, all right. We've talked about a couple of them, right? And some of them are minimizing extraneous decisions, mm-hmm. right? Some of them are making the most out of limited training time. Mm-hmm. Right, what you're describing, you're going to have their lifts ready for yeah. them. You have in your mind a, a process of their refinement and development, and you're yeah. able to, to create the circumstances for them to grow the most efficiently. Mm-hmm. What else would you put on that list? What are their like to you know to use this word purposefully incorrectly? What are their macronutrients? Would you put on that list other than you know minimizing decision fatigue, maximizing yeah. time under pressure? What else? Yeah. And I, th- I think that lends nicely to, as, as you were talking, the thing that popped up in my mind is like, okay, well, if I zoom out even further of, well, what are the principles that we're talking about? Really the principle that I am trying to push is being intentional. Mm. And I think that is, I'm thinking, as you're saying, peak first optimal, I'm really thinking about how do I make performance robust. And I know I said that before, but that I think that term just applies is everything like there's the world is so messy. It's so complex. It's so there's so many things going on. There's so many chances for things to break. 
how do I structure everything intentionally so that there's some redundancy so that there's, there's ways oh, that yeah. if this happens, then I, I know that I'm still capable of making the best decision. And a lot of that is helping players understand their, their own identity, helping them understand why, like talking through with them, why is it that you do what you do? What do you love about this? Get to know the person, get to understand them. And as I, as I start to understand them more deeply, hmm. I can be a better coach to them because I know what pull, strings to pull. I know, um, you know, I hate using the term motivation, but I know where they're motivated and what their purpose is. And I can drive it that way. I can link their goals to that. I can, I can help them on a day where it's the middle of the season and, it's, and they're tired and they're sore. I know how to lift those players up. And I think that's the robust system that I'm looking to do is they're ne they're like in professional sports, you're never going to be at your peak, mm -hmm. especially as you go through the season, you're basically just trying to hold as best as you can throughout the season and stay as fresh as you can. But the best you're ever going to feel is right before that first rep in training camp. You know, that's, sure. that's the best you're ever going to feel. And you're just trying to keep that up all the way into February. And it's a really long time. And, and these guys are gladiators and they, they put their bodies on the line and they're sore all the time. Like a Monday and a Tuesday after a game is just, you know, it's, it's triage sometimes. Yeah. Um, so I, I hope that's going down the road that we're talking about. I, you know, that was just what was in my mind is can we be intentional about how to set up your day, how to set up your week, what the next four games are going to look like? How are we going to get to that? Like on a, on, you know, the third practice of a week when you're tired, how do how do you know how to get into a state where you are ready, you are primed, you're going to get the most out of your reps? And I think what that is, is it compounds on itself because the better day that you have day one and the better recovery you have, you come into the next day feeling a little bit fresher. Your reps that you get to practice now are a little bit better. They're a little bit more intentional. They're with a little bit more sharpness you leave feeling better or, or more prepared for the game. You were, again, you do that over and over, you recover your nutrition, your sleep. And over time that compounds on itself to where you are fresher at the end of the season than a player who might not be treating their body as well, or someone that, that isn't intentional about what they're doing. They could be working super hard just at the wrong things or working hard without intent and their energy is wasted. So I think, the, the the main the first principle that I'm talking about is to be intentional with the work that you're doing because there's only so many reps that your body has before it starts to break down. So the more intentional you can be about that, the better chance. I mean, it's 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 um, risk mitigation. It's like all it is is trying to reduce the risk of something bad happening, and that is the idea of building a robust system. Yeah, man. Com compounding. Like there's only so many times you can do it. So can you do enough of them in the right way and also mm -hmm. not the wrong way, which are sort of mm -hmm. two separate thoughts in order that your your system compounds on itself and you become better tomorrow and then better the day after that than you were today. Mm -hmm. I, I, as you're talking about this, I'm getting this image of... um you know, a person, I don't know, I don't know why this is the image I'm thinking of, and you're gonna have to bear with me for like a second on this, but getting the image of, you know, like one of those people that balances on a log that's rolling in the water, 
right? Yeah. And it's a constant balancing act and the log is moving and everything. And you're actually, I don't know why I'm thinking about that. I have literally no idea, but you, you're describing two different approaches to making that thing work better, right? One is you train the person to be better at balancing. And yep. the other is you make the log bigger so that the log is easier to balance on. Yeah. And really you're pushing at both of those pieces in the system. So mm -hmm. I like that you're pushing back on me because maybe I'm wrong saying peak performance in this, right? Yeah. Maybe peak isn't really the word. Maybe it's a version of optimal sort of applied towards a goal of peak or mm -hmm. something like that, right? Like maybe what we're describing is what's the best way we can hold that tension for a long period of time yeah. and operate under that tension. Yeah. And what we're saying is how do we make the person better at it? Mm -hmm. And how do we make the system support the person better? Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. I also think that the mm -hmm. one piece missing in there too is how can we create that tension for as long as we can, but also how can we appropriately release that tension mm -hmm. and, 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 and get out of that and zoom out. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's the idea of if you want to reduce it down to recovery, mm -hmm. but it's really, you know, if I can get these doses, these exposures to being really locked in and, and absorbing all my, or, or focusing all my energy onto one task, like it, that takes a lot of resources, emotional, physical resources. And the, the recharge aspect of that is like, you really have to get zoom out and see like being panoramic and being zoomed in and getting panoramic yeah. and getting zoomed in and being really efficient at that in the moment. And then also being like acutely and chronically. Yeah. So can I do, can between plays, can I be locked in and then, all right, into the next play. And on the flip side is, okay, I'm locked in on a Sunday. Can I zoom out on a Monday and Tuesday to, to prepare my body for practices coming up after that? You know, so there's the, it's yeah. the constant. And, and actually, if, if I'm thinking about this and these thoughts are just kind of coming to me is in sports in general the physical ability to tense and relax makes for the smoothest athletes sure. like the, the relax it like if you think about a boxer they're so relaxed and they throw the punch and the last minute they they snap their wrist boom and they punch super hard but if you just try to tense and force and, and punch then you're going to be inaccurate and you're not you're going to waste your energy and, and it's not going to be you're not going to be a very good boxer same thing yeah. would apply of a you know a baseball pitcher throwing a baseball they whip their arm but there's so much tension created at the end of that whip so a lot of that is like we're looking at the fractals of just zooming out of you know uh, tension and relaxation tension relaxation tension relaxation and the ability to do that really really well is probably a, a huge benefit to people in sports but I'm going to go ahead and guess that that's going to translate into everyday life. Well, you know, it, your spontaneous thoughts are these like, you know, Zen level thinks about uh, relaxation and tension blending together in a yin and yang yeah. style. And my <laughs> spontaneous thoughts are guys running on logs. So I, I don't know what that means about both of us, but I really well, think about that, that guy. There's got to be some relaxation yeah. on that log, too. Right. I mean, you gotta, you're going to be airborne. Totally. Or yeah. <laughs> totally. No, I, I think you're spot on about that, both about the, you know, both about the importance of balancing tension and relaxation you know, in, in emergencies, we talk about heads up versus head down situations, right? You are, you are coned in, your focus is coned in on a particular task, sometimes because that task is literally threading a tiny wire through a, a tiny hole, and you literally mm -hmm. have to sort of be zoomed into it. 
And then you have to cone back out your focus to see the rest of the patient. What's happening? How's your team operating? What about those six patients over there and that one coming in? And so that that discipline of you know heads up, heads down, heads up is something we work a lot on in resuscitation with all of our teams. Um, we also have a mirrored process, like what you're describing of the two different operational tempos that we work at, right? There's the micro tempo of the event, the moment, the case, the procedure, the whatever it is. And then there's the more longer period, you know, lower frequency up tempo of the day or the shift or the cycle mm -hmm. of shifts or something like that. Um, and I'm really fascinated by, by the relaxation part of it. I, I was working with a group the other day and we were going through um, their results on, uh, on the crisis skills test that we had built. And Actually, okay, like I don't usually do this. I should have plugged this at the beginning, but quick plug, if you're interested, you should take the crisis skills test. You can go to emergencymind.com. It's in the upper right corner. It's totally worth taking. If you're a team that wants to do that, please reach out to me. We have a lot of cool resources for that. All right, plug, plug over. So this group had done the crisis skills test and we were analyzing their results and their group as a whole, as a team, really was challenged by the recovery aspect of it. Right. This breaks you. This breaks your skill sets down along the prepare, perform, recover, and evolve cycle that we use as, mm -hmm. our, as one of our core models. And we were going through their skills. We were talking through their their next steps and approaches. And one of them at the end of it turned around to me and goes, "Well, you know, Dan, who actually does recovery well? Right? Who actually does recovery well?" And I've been that's been rattling around in my head for a while now. I've been thinking yeah. about this because I think what you're describing is really the you know, the power of learning to relax in the moment and the power of coming down from a high in the middle of it uh, mm. is a really underappreciated art. And, you know, yeah. I think immediately of like Josh Waitzkin and his, and his book and his work, which is totally yeah. incredible. Um, yeah. But what, what do you do with that? How, like who does recovery well, who does relaxation well like that? And I don't mean the like, you know, flop on the couch relaxation. I mean, what you're describing the yeah. balance of tension yeah. and relaxation. Yeah. Yeah. How, how do we do that? I mean, I, I work closely with our mental skills coach here uh, and, she, and she's amazing. And some of the things we do, we will have guys do biofeedback. Um, it's, it's the, the off time where you work on actively recovering. Like it's, it's just as much work as it is putting the work in to do the performance. And I think people get so zoomed in. Sometimes you got to flip around the telescope and, and look at everything like you, you see a, a, a panned out thing where it's you don't have to always just work on the skill itself. You also have to work on how to recover. You have to work on like, that's why I think meditation is so hard for people because it's 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 hard. It's difficult. It's active. Like you have to be engaged with it. So the part of relaxation, I think they get or, or recovery that gets glossed over is it's not just laying down and flopping on the couch. It's work. Like you are going to have to go through some difficulty of being inactive in your mind to be still. And that's sometimes hard for people. And I think that's sometimes why people work so hard because it's like, they're uncomfortable being silent. They're uncomfortable being still. And so helping players or helping people through that is part of this as well. Helping them understand what meditation is, helping them understand what the process is for, for being mindful. 
and then looking at everything as a rep. I, I, you know, as a strength coach, I, this resonates with me because sets and reps are, you know, part of your life. But when you're thinking about bringing yourself back down in the moment, when that guy cuts you off in traffic, your ability to stop, recognize, be aware of the situation and respond in a way that is appropriate is a rep. You are, your brain is plastic. You are affecting your brain in some way that this is my decision. Am I going to be able to do that so many times throughout a day that when it comes time where there's actual pressure, that that is my default instead of getting hijacked by, I, I get so ramped up and I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm an emotional person or however, whatever your, your general default is just practicing those things at a low level. I know that there's a phase transition into when pressure ramps up, but I do think that there is value in practicing those things on a daily basis, because as you practice that, again, another compounding thing is you have a fight with your wife and you allow that to linger for two days instead of in the moment saying, you know what, I'm, I'm sorry, you were right. We're like, you know, hashing it out and moving on. And then your next day is a lot better instead of thinking about that at work or being unfocused or forgetting to do something because you're hijacked by something that just your, your, you know, your subconscious is, is constantly on because of that. I was really super unscientific, but it's uh, yeah, great. It's great. Saying is the more you can practice, the more you can have reps of being aware of bringing yourself back down. I have found that in the moment, it makes it a lot easier when pressure ramps up. Hmm. Yeah, I love it. Absolutely love it. Um, I uh, this concept of treating everything like a rep is uh, I'm I'm. I, I love that. I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you in my, you you know, my examples are abstract and weird, but, and and one of the players that I work really closely with, um, he laughs at me because I do this, but like on the, you know, I'm not playing, but I will say at the, down at, down at the field, when they're introducing the, the team and think, I mean, it's wild. It's, it's, you can't hear yourself think, or, you know, you, it's, it's overwhelming if you've never been down there, the more you're down there, the more you kind of take it for granted and it, it is what it is. But, you know, during right before the national anthem or right after the national anthem and the place is going wild, I start to imagine things of like, what if I had to, what if I had to sing the national anthem right now? Like, and I try to make it true in my head where all of a sudden my heart starts beating a little bit faster. Like, what if I had the microphone I had seen? Like, I'd be nervous. Okay, can I regulate myself? Like, so I find these pockets of time just for myself because I think it's an interesting experiment of, you know, right before this podcast, like my heart rate elevated a bit because I want to be, I want to speak well and I want to, I want to, you know, articulate my point well and say, okay, am I able to downregulate just a bit, just so that I can be, cognizant of what I'm going to say, and then I'm going to be aware of, of the things that I'm going to be saying. And, and what is that going to look like? So that's, you know, to me, that's a really strong, powerful moment to uh, like, I'm not going to get the, I'm not going to be playing the game, but it is a rep of my heart is racing. There's a little bit of adrenaline. What am I going to do in those situations? That to me is a real rep. 
And the more powerful your visualization is, the more powerful that that stimulus is, the the closer I think you get to when there is a moment of stress, I'm able to to bring it down. So it's about as close as I get to if I'm going to stand up in front of 60,000 people and actually sing the national anthem, it's about as close as I'm going to to get hopefully 60,000 people will never have to hear me sing, <laughs> but you know, that's, that would be, that would be as close as I could get. Yeah. That's so great. I, you know, uh, in a similar vein, I'll often recommend to my residents um, that they mentally rehearse a procedure at the end of a workout. Right. Mm. So they're, yep. they've, their heart yeah. rates up, they're stressed out, they're doing right. everything and it's different, right? Cause it's a fun stress. It's an endorphin filled thing as opposed to mm-hmm. sort of like more of a, you know, cortisol driven thing. Again, very unscientific, but we're going to ignore that for a second, but like, it's a different, it's a different chemical profile, but you're still stressed. You're still heart rates up. You're still having all the things your, your breathing is, is fast and shallow. And that's when I have them mentally rehearse a procedure, right? Mm-hmm. And I suggest that they mentally rehearse a procedure. Because that's what it's going to be like when you're sprinting off to go do a cardiac arrest case somewhere, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. so you have to be used to that sort of thing. Um, one of the big skills we work on is the moment of communication that hits when you first run into a room and you have to take command of the situation, mm-hmm. right? That's a thing that a lot of people have a lot of nervousness about for a wide variety of reasons. Um, and even that is a skill you can practice at the end of a run mm-hmm. or at the end of a workout. You're breathing yeah. fast. Things don't make a lot of sense. There might be people walking by looking at you like you're a little bit off and you're going to sit, you know, that's when you're going to drop in and be like, okay, here's the, here's the script I'm going to use. Here's how I'm going to do it and everything. Yeah. Um, it, it's, um, uh, I, I like doing it, but I like putting myself in uncomfortable situations that are a little bit weird. Uh, yeah. So, you know, use it your own risk, but I think that's a, I think that's a great way to, to, to double what you're saying, which is like, when you find yourself in situations that are hard, that is the time to get the rep in, to slow yourself back down. Absolutely love it, man. Yeah. And I think when, when I hear you say that, I'm thinking about buffering stress and Mm -hmm. in, in physiology, you know, you're buffering when you're buffering lactate as lactate comes in and you're using it as an energy source, but then all of a sudden there's an accumulation of lactate and that's what people are calling lactic acid and it it burns. And if you're not able to buffer that, if you're not able to use that, then it becomes a negative. So the arousal of all of that is, okay, I'm, I'm in better shape. I can buffer the lactate. I can use that as fuel. I can recycle it. Now I'm in better shape and it, and it's a positive feedback loop. Now the opposite is now all of a sudden all that lactate builds up and it's its own positive feedback loop in the opposite direction. But the same thing would be, can I buffer the stress emotionally and, and mentally as I walk into a room or I walk into a situation or, or I, you know, the first play of the game, am I able to buffer that and use that adrenaline and arousal and emotion intentionally as a resource to focus my energy? And I, I, someone mentioned this one time and I, it really stuck with me is, that emotions are currency. You can you can spend them how you want, but happiness, sadness, nervousness, all those things, they, they build up and you can disperse it and waste it wherever you want, but you can also use that state of arousal if you can get yourself in the appropriate state of arousal as a really powerful focusing tool. And I think that was just, you know, that's more of a representation than it is science, but it's just, it's a way of thinking of, okay, if I'm nervous, can I get myself to the point where 
those nerves are not overwhelming me where I can't think of anything or they're underwhelming me where I just can't get myself going. But if I can get to that appropriate arousal state, I can really focus in on what I'm doing and stay locked in the moment. And then I know how to regulate myself because I've practiced in different situations and low levels and high levels of how to change my arousal state. Dude, I love it. I love it. I, I want to switch. So like, I, I, oh, yeah. It's just easy to no, do. Please. It's just, I'm a master. Like, but obviously the world is just, it's, there's a million things going on all the time. And that's the one thing I will say about like, when I, I'm always, when I want to podcast, I want to make sure everyone knows this is so hard. Like it's, <laughs> that's why people aren't good at it. Like yeah, people are not good totally. at it. when you are, and when you're, even when you're just slightly intentional about it, you become so much more efficient because not only are you, is it correct to do, but you have the confidence to like, I'm kind of getting an edge on people because mm. I'm being so intentional. You're fitting through the cracks where everyone else is trying to push the wall down. Mm. So it's, it's, it's so hard to do, but it's like, if you're just, again, the, the principle, the macro, the, the, the zoomed out principle is, is just, can you be intentional about everything? Love it, man. Just love it. Um, for the last chunk of our time here, I want to switch gears just a little bit. So right. we've been talking mostly about the um, mostly about the internal work that we do, the way that we mm -hmm. think about it, the way that we think yeah. about approaching things with intentionality, and a little bit about the way our team around us helps us succeed at that. Yeah. For the last chunk, I want to switch that around for a second, right? So. And I don't want I don't not asking you to reveal trade secrets here or anything, but mm -hmm. how do how do you build a system and a team that supports the people doing what it is that you're saying? And we, we've already yeah. covered one or two details of it, right? One is removing obstacles in one sense, and another one is um, uh, making sure folks have the basic building blocks of what they need sort of squared away. Yeah. What else do you put in that list? You know, if I give you all the money in the universe to create the optimal scenario here, what does that look like? Are you saying for a team or for an individual? Ooh, um, that's a good question. Take your pick. Right. <laughs> is it is well, it the same? Is it different? What is a? I think you know, I've been really lucky to be around a few teams, including the one I'm at right now, where I've watched people build teams. You know, mm -hmm. I, and I've been a part of it, but I'm not, you know, I, I'm not selecting players. I'm not lead. I, I lead from in a position where I can help mobilize what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at leadership in that way, in, in position, in authority, I'm, I'm not there, but in a way of understanding the collective goal and helping mobilize that I'm there, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best. I'm doing my job. I'm doing my part in order to make that happen. And what I see in teams is a sense of belonging to the team. And even that is not nuanced enough. And I think there are some things that can't be translated into language. You know, there's just certain words and like certainly like, it's so hard to describe what that is, but it is a sense of connection. It's a sense of connection that I am here to do something greater than myself and I'm willing to put in the work in order to achieve that with people because the fulfillment is greater. I think the best example is when you watch a championship and I'll, and I, you and I have not talked about this, so I'll be interested to see what your answer is, but say you watch the Super Bowl or the NBA finals or, uh, you know, mm -hmm. whatever sport that you're watching at the end, 
boom, final, final second ticks. What is the first thing that a player does? Hmm. What do you think that, well, if, if you're just picturing your mind, what's the first thing that players do? I mean, they hug, right? They, they go to each other, other, they hug. They look yeah. for each other. No one's like, oh, I did this. I yeah. did this. And that's the ultimate moment of success. That is, I have achieved at the highest level. And the first thing they do is they look around or they or they look up. They look sure. up and, you know, but it's their relationship. It's the relationship with God. It's the relationship with other people. It's their, it's the relationship. It's the connection that it's not, hey, I did this. It's we did this or in a recognition that this is a collective connection that made this happen. Mm. And I think that's such a powerful thing to watch. It's powerful to be a part of. I hope I'm a part of as many as I can, but no matter what it is, it's really like, it's about belonging to a group and doing something. It's about connecting. It's about mm. sharing your story. And, you know, I'm not sure I'm, I'm on board with, every feel good book that I've read about psychological safety and, and, and even belonging and connection. Like there's, there's real world stuff to that. Like there's stuff of, Hey, I need to succeed because I care about succeeding. Like there's internal drive of the mm -hmm. self, but it becomes more powerful when you create a, an environment that allows the self to be full and to do it with other people. Because I think everyone on teams and I hope this translates to, to different domains is everyone on teams has their own individual wants and they're not all the same. Sure. Even in cultures, like culture is not something to have. It's something to be, it's something to be a part of. And it's something to adapt with because everyone has their own individual goal of what they're trying to do because that's their own experience. That's their own internal drive. That's like there, everyone has their own, you know, again, I don't like to use the word motivations, but maybe purpose or, or, whatever reason that what matters to them and it doesn't have to be the same it doesn't have to all be in alignment it doesn't have to be words on the wall that say hey we are all are going to do this everyone has their own wants but the recognition of each other's wants the the, the vulnerability to to let your guard down and show other people what i want or to allow someone else to say what they want and support that knowing that everyone's driving for the end same end goal is a really powerful way to create a team that is greater than the sum of their parts. And I think that at the end of it is the environment that I've seen be built places. Mm. And that happens naturally. That happens, happens with a little bit of push here and a little push there. But the biggest glue to any team or culture is really just the daily interactions of saying hello to someone, of asking how someone's kids are. Of Like for me, I'm, you know, with players and coaches, like remembering a, a player's kid's name is such a powerful way for them to be like, oh, this person cares about me. They mm -hmm. remembered my, my kid's name. I ask about how that person is, or I ask them like understanding what really motivates them and drives them and, and, and what makes them like be animated when they're talking about it, when they get animated and talking about cars, like, okay, well, maybe I'm going to learn a little bit about cars, you know, they get animated talking about uh, their business. Well, I wonder what their business is. Let me look into that. And going above and beyond and showing that, hey, I did a little bit of research on this. I was just wondering what your thoughts were on it. Mm. And then you can engage them as a human being and, and talk to them. 
And again, like I've talked none about sets and reps as a strength coach, but what I've talked about is interacting with human beings in a way that they feel connected so that as stuff gets hard and I have to ask them to do hard things, they're more willing, like the, the, the ground is fertile, more fertile for them to do those or go further or push harder when it's really, really uncomfortable. And that could be in the moment. It could be in the week. It could be in the year. It could be a lot of things. Um, and it doesn't always work out the best, you know, it doesn't always, you don't always connect with everyone, but I think the more connections you can make, the more people you can have and the more connections you can make. Now we're talking about something robust. Now we're talking about redundancy. Now we're talking about, uh, something that doesn't just break apart because there's one crack because there's so many webs of connections of, of people and understanding and, and, and desires and wants and understand and, and respect for all that, um, and that's and that's really, you know, zoomed out, zoomed out, zoomed out. But I think that to me is the is the way that I think about building an environment and being a part of a culture and adapting with it. Because it, it's just it's a it's its own rainforest. And every year you get different people and you get different and even the same people have different sure. things going on in their lives. And um, but that teamwork is really, you know, I think there's. It's easier to talk about teamwork and be like, hey, let's align our values and and be together. And sure. And I just, you know, in my experience of just wanting to be in reality, I see it much more as, hey, can we go through, can we have a something that's so strong because we recognize each other that as we go through stuff where it, you know, you're rolling down a hill and there's you hit a rock and you you bounce off here and can we withstand that? Can we withstand that? Keep the momentum going. Hmm. I mean, you're that really. Answer, that didn't even answer the question. I was yeah, just like, no, philosophical. You got in the zone, man. You went for it. I love it. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I think I think that what you're describing is part of the the beauty and the strength of an intact team. Right? Yeah. And, you know, again, we we always talk about the difference between the swarm team that doesn't know each other, that convenes ad hoc to solve a problem, and the intact team that is selected that trains that lives that plays together and mm -hmm. that's a that's such a powerful vision of what the strength of an intact team can be that you just described in there mm -hmm. right it's this rich you know diverse set of interconnections that is highly linked and strong and not just robust i'd say but resilient right that it grows with stress as opposed mm -hmm. to just you know buffers stress in some sense anti-fragile that would be anti-fragile exactly right. yeah because you have to have that stress in order to really take that team to the next level, yeah. right? Yeah. If you all, if you all just sat around and you know lifted some weights together, that's a great group of friends, but that's not really a right. team the way that you're describing right. from it, right. right? So you do you have that anti you know that that component of anti fragility to it, um, you know I, I think in the same way that earlier we were describing how folks that operate in mostly optimal and not peak environments should endeavor to learn what the tenets of a, a peak pointing team is. I think mm -hmm. it's also worth saying that folks that operate mostly in swarm teams or, you know, smash teams or gel these teams, these things in the middle, right. Should endeavor to learn what the best things of an intact team really are, what the pillars are of that. Yeah. And, you know, there's an, there's an existing challenge, right. Which is how do you take some of the strength of that and grow it in a space where, you don't have 
you know, the same people coming back. You don't have the same interstitial tissue and, and structure that you're describing for it, but that you can, you can make steps towards it, even if you're not getting all the way there. So I, I really, I really appreciate you sharing that vision of it for sure. Yeah. The, the swarm, that's such an interesting challenge. And I mean, I just, it's definitely foreign to what I'd be used to because of mm-hmm. the amount of time spent day by day by day with the same team, or at least the majority of the same components, you know, year after year, um, I could see that being its own unique challenge. So that's a, uh, that's, that's a really interesting one. Yeah. That, that'll be the next, the next call you and I have together will be me picking hmm. your brain about how to, how to, you yeah, know. you'd be telling me about that. Cause I, yeah, there's a lot. I would be asking questions about it. Well, Will, this has been amazing, man. I, we are we are coming to the end of our time here, and we've hit just like incredible stuff, right? I just want to like like highlight list this for a second. We talked about the power of uh, of compounding. We talked about the way to line things up and keep lining them up. the The idea of treating everything like a rep to get better at what your life is doing. We talked about tension and relaxation. Uh, we talked about leveraging limited training sets. Talked about everything like you know buffering lactate and the you know psycho you know psychological and physiological feedback loops, and now this incredible vision of what a of a thriving like truly thriving intact team could really look like. And mm-hmm. man, th- thank you for for all of that. Um, well, I hope uh, it all made sense. Yeah, you know, sometimes I get on <laughs> and I'm not even sure if I'm answering the question, but you know I, I really appreciate you having me on here, and and I appreciate all of our talks all the time, and I I love your podcast and I love your book and. I've actually had a couple of guys read the book already and, oh, right on. and we work through that together and talk about what pressure looks like and, and, you know, why it's pressure and, and then, you know, work through game by game, practice by practice, how to, how to use that as a rep. Super cool, man. I, um, I, I want to give you a chance at the end of this to issue a challenge to everybody listening to this, if that's something you want to do. Um, folks who are listening to this, who, Jeez, maybe they're operating in teams like the ones you're describing already. Maybe they're operating in an environment that's totally different from that. If they could do one thing differently after listening to this, what would you want them to try? A really good question. I think I could take it a lot of ways, but I think what I'm going to say is find a space, give, find a time to just be aware and give yourself space in pressure moments. Hmm. And that doesn't have to be in your skill. That could be, like I said, getting cut off in a, in traffic or like you can even pre-plan, Hey, I'm probably going to get annoyed sitting in traffic tonight, or, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to be irritable at this time of the day because I haven't had my coffee or I woke up early. And in that moment, I think the challenge would be to pause be aware and just give yourself the space to take three seconds, five seconds, 10 seconds, whatever time that you have to just think, is this the reaction that I want to have? Can I be intentional about it? And then start using those as reps. Super cool, man. I, uh, I welcome you all to come move to Los Angeles where we have no, uh, no lack of training facilities for that yeah, kind of right, thing. Right. Um, no, that's amazing. I, I, uh, I think that's a great challenge. I'd, I'd love to hear how you all are doing this if you're listening to this. Um, and with that, I will say, uh, as we close out here, once again, um, the job of the Emergency Mind podcast here is never to provide medical advice, uh, nor is it to provide anything that represents the groups that we work for. We're all just here as individuals 
trying to work together to put our heads together to make the universe a slightly better place. So I hope you enjoy this. Uh, and Will, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate you.